You are now tuned in to the December 26th podcast, where we encourage you to be extraordinary on an ordinary day. What's up, 26er family? Welcome to another episode of the December 26er podcast. I am your host, Delisha, and this episode features Dr. Karen Baptiste. Dr. K is an executive coach, actor, director, and filmmaker. Dr. K knew early on that she wanted to be a journalist, but somehow found herself studying computer information systems at the start of her college career. There were some bumps in the road, including multiple changes to her major, but eventually she found her lane. Upon graduation, Dr. K set out to find a job, really any job. At first, she took a position in retail, but after a chance encounter while working as a supervisor at Toys R Us, she landed a job at Fox 5 with no interview. After a year at Fox, Dr. K was ready for a change. What she thought would be a short break before a move to another network actually became the start of her journey into education. Over time, she not only took note of the disparate treatment of black and brown students within the educational system, but she also took action. She has been a longstanding advocate for juvenile justice reform and children wrongfully placed in special education. But it was her own younger brother's story that prompted her to make her first documentary, From Preschool to Prison, which is currently in production. This film will highlight how policies are used to implement harsh school discipline practices that set up a pathway for children of color and children with special needs to go from school to prison. And that is only a portion of her vision for this project. Now, once again, we couldn't cover it all in one episode. So here's part one of our conversation. Please enjoy. Dr. K, welcome to the December 26th podcast. How are you? I'm great. I'm alive and well. So thank you for having me. And listen, after the last 12 months, being alive and well, uh, we always knew it was a blessing, but it it hits differently now for sure. Absolutely. I agree. I mean, I just focus really on what I have, all the blessings that I do have and not the things that I don't have or that I want to have because you just you end up with so much less when you focus on that. So I'm just trying to be grateful that I woke up today. Everybody didn't wake up today. Listen, I I was... uh, streaming a homegoing service this morning, mm-hmm. another one tomorrow. I mean, it's just, uh-huh. it's, it's strange times that we are, we are living in and, and, you know, we've been preaching gratitude on this show, mm. and, you know, all this stuff for a long time, but it, it has taken on a different meaning and the gravity of it has been different. And we're, we're very open on this show about the loss that we've experienced. Um, but the gravity of it, of being mm-hmm. grateful for what you have in the midst of a health, not only a health crisis, but an economic crisis now. Uh, and everything else is something that I'm not taking lightly. That's for sure. That's um, right. And when people come on and they radiate that gratitude mm-hmm. and, and that joy, it makes the conversation uh, all the more better. As yes. I say. So. Oh, yes. I agree. Let's get this. So, yes. yes. <laughs> I'm excited. I'm excited to get into your story and excited to shine a light on this amazing project that you're working on and, and assisting in getting the word out there about that. So why don't we jump into it? All right, let's do it. Okay. Who is Dr. Karen Baptiste? Oh man, that's always a that's probably the hardest question to answer. Seriously, uh, number one is I always struggled with talking about myself. As much as I like to talk, I don't like talking about myself because you never know. You never want to say things that are um, 
that don't that don't resemble any type of humility. Right? So you don't want to seem like you're just the best person to ever walk the earth. And so um, when you ask, who am I? I am I am that individual. Um, and I realized the purpose, my purpose here in this world. Uh, and and I, I didn't come to this understanding until I probably hit my 30s uh, that my purpose here is to really help others bring their life to fruition. Mm. My purpose here on this earth is to really help other people become insightful about themselves and recognize their own purpose. And I struggled a lot of times with who I am uh, growing up because I, I mean, there were a lot of things I didn't like about myself and a lot of things I didn't like about myself because the media told me I shouldn't like those things about myself. So I struggle with who I am. And as I continue to walk the path that God has set for me, I realize that I'm a person who is very generous, very giving. I love to share. I love to teach. Uh, and I realize that that's what I do, right? And so just thinking about when people always say, well, what do you think your legacy is going to be? And I remember uh, Dr. Maya Angelou speaking about like, you don't know what your legacy is. Everybody you touch is your legacy. So when people start asking, well, who am I? Right. That's what I do. That's the, the radiance that I help to bring and emanate in others and helping them find their purpose. Um, and I really have been placed here in, a, in a, a place of servitude where I really try to take on a role of, of a servant leader um, and, and really try to share the blessings that have been bestowed upon me. So I'm not sure if that's exactly what you were looking for when you say, who am I? Because that's not an easy question to answer. It's not. And some people have come flat out and I'll, and they know, right? We tell people that we're going to ask the question and people will say, I hate this question, right? And, oh, yeah. you know, and we don't do it because we don't have any knowledge of who you are or whatever. Mm -hmm. But what we have learned doing this show, and I've brought this up before, is that we ask the question because we, we have learned that people will always include things they're the most comfortable talking about and what they're the most passionate about with regard to their own story. So it helps us to know just kind of what to to look at in spotlight. Um, and I always notice that even when people find the, the the question hard to answer, as they're answering it, their shoulders relax a little bit. Yeah. So for me, it's like a great way just to get the conversation going and find a good cadence uh, as well, even though I, I know people can't stand it, but we're, we're going to continue to ask it anyway. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Because, you know, when you start talking about, you, you look at like the projects and everything, that's what I do, but that's not who I am. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, for me, who I am is when I can consistently be me, no matter what environment you put me in, that's who I am. Mm -hmm. So I don't, I don't really look at what I do, but who I am at the core. I'm that person, no matter what city, state, environment I'm in, whether it's good times or bad times. So you mentioned growing up and there were certain things about yourself that you didn't necessarily like. And we know the influence that the media has had in the past and continues to have. And of course, we're on this whole Black is Beautiful and, you know, Beyonce was talking about her Negro nose and all of that. And, and, and all that is great, right? But we know that, that what continues to be sort of mainstream representation of beauty and those standards is very different mm -hmm. than what we may deem beautiful in mm -hmm. our community, right? So I look at you, you come on the screen. I'm another woman, of course. I'm like, oh my God, beautiful skin, beautiful smile, mm -hmm. right? Oh, this, this, this color that you have on is just popping off. It's so great against your mm -hmm. skin. And, you know, having this view as another Black woman of right. what I deem to be gorgeous, but also knowing that growing up as a Black girl, 
is not always easy. So what was that like for you? Hell, <laughs> hell, right? I mean, because you growing up, we heard comments like, oh, you're pretty for a dark skinned girl. Mm -hmm. right? Oh, man. It was just like, what the hell does that mean? Right. But we got so accustomed to hearing it. It was normal. When you looked at the music videos, you didn't see girls that looked like me. So mm -hmm. in our minds, the mental conditioning of straighten your hair, bleach your skin. I remember I was I had um uh, one of the episodes I did on my podcast where I had a lady, a white lady on there who really wanted to have a conversation with a black person around like race and all these other things, because she did not grow up around black people. Like she, she said she was starting to recognize things that uh, she knew wasn't right, but she didn't know how to approach it. Right. So that was a start. So I said, I'll have this conversation with you. And so one of the things I shared with her is that we, there's bleaching cream in our beauty supply store. And she was like shocked. She was like, what, what do you mean by bleaching cream? I said, bleaching cream to bleach your skin. And and she's like, what? I've, I've never heard. I didn't, I didn't even know that happened. And I said, exactly. Like, these are the constant messages that we receive as Black people, right? As, as Black women, uh, we're always told, like, we, we need to lose weight, right? Our BMI is too high, right? This, this thinness that we should possess and we should straighten our hair. And then we were running out, getting contacts and lightening our eyes, right? All this kind of craziness to get closer to whiteness, right? Because that has what's been pushed down in our community Forever. And then when our brothers uh, start dating women and they start bringing home Latino women or white women, right, that it's reinforcing the message of we're not good enough, right? We're not good enough. Right. We're not considered beautiful. And so all throughout my childhood, I never thought I was pretty, right? I had nappy hair, right? if that's what we want to call it, right? But this is the original texture of my hair. And so mm -hmm. what did I do? Put weave, perm my hair. All the stuff, right? We relax out here. We do all those things to get it close to straight, right? This, the, what's the thing in the Black community? Like, straighten out those edges, right? Yes. <laughs> we want to make sure we have our edges straight. We want to make sure that we always look on point. But everything we're doing is always to assimilate to whiteness. And so for me, it just, I, I mean, I just went my whole childhood just never believing I was beautiful. And you don't, you know, and, and it's not like you you grew up in a household, at least in my household, you know, everybody's running around, you're beautiful, babe. It's just natural. You don't even think about, I need to sit down and tell my children how beautiful they are, right? Because you're like, well, I love my kids. We're a happy household. Why would I need to tell that? Right. And so not realizing these messages that are continuously being reinforced for us and how we end up seeing ourselves. And then self-hatred is developed and we don't even know it's developed. We're in denial about it. Absolutely. And it's funny you should bring that up because I have a couple of friends um, who are the most confident people I know, uh, despite being very, very dark skinned, what people would consider very dark skinned. And they both say, you know, my mother reinforced how beautiful I was. She told me I, that's all I knew. So when I went out into the world, hmm. it didn't matter what they said, because all I heard from the time I could remember is that I was gorgeous and my black skin was beautiful. So I didn't buy into this whole colorism thing. Uh, but I think one of the things that we don't think about as a community is that's the exception. Mm -hmm. And you may be in a household where you weren't told that you were ugly, but you weren't told that you were beautiful either. Exactly. And that silence is a void that you leave the outside world in the media to fill. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So, so thinking about that with regard to your story um, and, and not hearing those positive reinforcing messages, 
outward appearance is one thing and talents and passions and what you're good at is another. So despite having those struggles, were there things that you thought, you know what, I'm smart or I know I'm good at this, that sort of framed vision that you had for your life? You know, I didn't I didn't realize what my talents were until I got to college. Mm. I, I never had a single teacher ever say to me, you are talented in this. You are smart. You are ever. When I think back to all of my formal years, uh, never had that. Um, I had one history teacher that was just like, you're going to pass the RCT test. We had RCT exams um, in, in high school. And she was like, nope, you're going to pass. And one of the other teachers, he would call me at six o'clock in the morning. to have Not six. Six o'clock in the morning and was like, you're going to come in early. You're passing this test. That was the most investment I had. But at, still at that point, nobody ever said to me, you know, you're really great at this. Have you thought about this? I knew by the age of seven, by the age of seven, I knew I wanted to be a journalist. Mm-hmm. I knew. I loved Oprah. I loved Barbara Walters. And you could not tell me I was not going to be them. I always knew I wanted to do television and that I wanted to do journalism. Um, but no one ever pushed me in that area. And so when I got to college and, and uh, the journalism department was really small, the faculty was really small, is when I actually had people starting to invest in me. So I went my whole life just even thinking I was talentless, right? Because I didn't, I didn't, I wasn't able to do special tricks. <laughs> you see people like, you're like, oh, wow, they're able to do this. You're like, okay, I can't do this and I can't do that. You just think like, okay, that's just a life. You know, not everybody has a talent. You start believing that only certain people get gifted with talents not realize everybody has a talent. It's about Mm -hmm. having the right people around you to discover and help you to identify those hidden talents that you may have. And oftentimes we don't have enough people in our community doing that for us because we're so busy trying to find ourselves. We don't have time to do that for one another. Yeah. And I think, you know, we can get into a little bit more of like your family dynamic, but I know a lot of us have these stories, you know, We have stories around, yeah, my parents encouraged me to do extracurriculars. They saw something in me and they Mm -hmm. nurtured it or they, you know, let me choose several activities until I found one that that stuck. But a lot of people also have the story of like, my family was just trying to put food on the table. Like, (laughs) get up, make sure you get to school. Is your homework done? Like, eat your dinner, get ready for bed, do it all over again. So what was your family dynamic like? Were you encouraged even if not in the discovering your talents department to like get good grades so you could go to college? What did that look like? Uh, That was really, you know, single parent household. We grew up poor, you know, family migrated here to America. And it was really like my mom, my mom really stressed school. Like school is important. You get good grades because the belief was that like, that's how you make it, right? Then you go and get you a good job and you make it. That's it. Um, I mean, other than, you know, coming from a Caribbean background, you... The most important things, like when you, it's doctor, uh, nurse, some form of trade, right? Like uh, the arts is not considered real jobs, right? Like you're not pursued into music and dance and those other kind of things, right? You're uh, really normally pushed. You see a lot of women going into nursing, right? And a lot of the men in construction. So you're normally pushed into those kind of trades. And so um, we were we were financially poor, but we were not um, intellectually Poor, if, 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 if I could even say that. Um, I don't even want to say that, actually. We were, mm. we were not behaviorally poor. 
right? We, my, my mother still, because there's a, there's a belief that if you are financially poor, that you don't have the ability to see and do anything else of high standard, mm-hmm. right? Whereas that was not the case. So my household was filled with love. It was filled with laughter. And despite being not having all of the money to do what my mother wanted us to do, my mother still had the wherewithal to say, well, you know what, I'm going to work overtime, save us some and take the kids to a museum, take them to the zoo, take them to different places and open up their mind and let them explore within the city of New York all these different things that many other people did not do. And it didn't require a lot of money to do that, but she would find out ways how to go on the free days to the zoo, right? And all these other things that a lot of people just didn't know. So we were rich in that sense. Um, but our, you know, the, but we didn't need money to validate that for us. I didn't even know we were poor until we got, I got to college. Like I, there was mm. a lot of discovery for me when I got to college. I was like, I was poor growing up. I, I didn't even know we were, I thought that was normal. <laughs> like, right. Oh, this is just what it is. Why? Because that's what the rest of the neighborhood looks like. Right. So if, if that is the measurement for, uh, you know, for what the living standard is, you think it's normal. And then when you go to your friend's house in another hood, it looks the same way. Right. <laughs> so if that's what all of everybody in your circle's living condition is like, you believe that's what it's like. So with, what you see on TV is fictional. Mm-hmm. You don't even believe it's real. Like for, for me watching the Cosby show growing up, I was like, black people don't live like that. <laughs> <laughs> And I grew up when I got old and I was like, wait, they are black people living like this? No, for real, for real. They're like real life, Jack and Jill, Cosby, the links, all of it is out there. Yes. <laughs> I was like, I was like floored when I found out. I was like, oh, you know, because growing up, we, we just thought like black people are just poor. Mm-hmm. Right. And so and then when you look at wh- where you live and how you live and you're like, yeah, that's true. We're poor. And then you grow up and you're like, wait, we not. Hold up. We were the original inventors and creators of everything. <laughs> everything. Yes. But this is not taught to us. Mm-hmm. So we reinforce the stereotypes against us and we just, it becomes the self-fulfilling prophecy. And then we see that play out in schools where we Absolutely. think we're not smart enough. Absolutely. Which gets into like a whole other segment, which we're going to definitely going to get to with regard to the work that you do today. Um, but going back to your story about getting to college and and knowing, you know, having known for years at this point that you wanted to be a journalist, was that your focus when you actually got to school? Oh, I changed my major five times. Let me tell you. Not five, though. Five. Five. So I had a, a counselor, a high school counselor, who I will never forget. Um, we were filling out our college application and I wanted to go away to school. Nobody in my family had ever went to college. Nobody in my family ever went away to school. And I remember he said to me, um, what, why, why are you going away to school? Why are you applying to four-year colleges? I'm like, uh, that's what people do, right? Uh, and, and he says to me, that's not for you. I, I remember this so clearly. He said, I think you need to just apply to a two-year school and just be done. Uh, college is not really a place for you. And I applied to a two-year school. I almost didn't apply at all. Mm. And I remember my best friend saying, no, she, she was like, F him. You won't go to school. Because her older brother had went to an Ivy League school. And mm. so that was, that was what we saw as like, oh, okay, we should be going to school. And I ended up going to a two-year school. And then uh, I don't know how I ended up not even majoring in journalism because they had a journalism program there. 
Somehow, you know, going there, I was told I should do some form of liberal arts, computer information system. Pro- you, you know, I didn't know any better. My mother didn't know any better. She comes up there to the school with me and she's like, oh, well, if that's what the school says you should do, then that's what you should do. I never needed any remedial courses ever. Mm-hmm. Not from the time I was in elementary, middle, high school, and I didn't need remedial courses when I got to college. Never needed it. But yet I still ended up stuck in these type of programs. I failed out of school within the first six months of school. So this was at the two-year? This was at the two-year. I I failed out of school. Okay, so let's unpack that a little bit because never been in a remedial class before. Nope. Kind of end up applying to this two-year school just because your guidance counselor spoke that over you, right? Yeah. Or this administrator. How did you end up failing out of the program? Let me tell you something. That was all God. I know that sounds crazy, but so... You know, living away at school, first time on my own. I'm 17 years old. I meet another group of friends. We're all living away. All of us were West Indian, by the way. It was bizarre. Never knew each other before we got there. We all met, all came from the same kind of strict households. So we were having a blast. We were oh, hungry. yeah, you, you were getting it in. Yeah. Oh, we were getting in, right? We were hitting all the campus parties, having a blast. And I did not realize um, I was not paying as much attention to my schoolwork as I should have been. On the flip side, my schoolwork was a lot more difficult for me because I was, they placed me in a computer information systems um, major. They had me, it was called CIS. I was in a CIS major. I knew nothing about computers and the courses were way advanced for me. Literally, I remember sitting in class and the professor came over with the inside of a computer, literally like put it in front of everybody and was like, label the parts. I was like, what? I failed out. Yeah, I, I was taking classes like that. I was like, what is this? So it was a combination of like, I don't even know what I'm in and I'm doing. I'm placing these advanced classes because I always had good grades. I just was mm-hmm. putting in advance. I was in the second top program in high school. So mm-hmm. I immediately was just putting these type of courses in, in college, and but I had no clue. And so, you know, partying was a lot more fun. And I just thought like, oh yeah, I'll just go in and study the night before I got this. When I got that dismissal letter, oh my goodness. I was the only one out of all my friends that got kicked out of school. And we did the equal amount of party. And I couldn't. And for the life of me, I remember crying hysterically because I was so disappointed in myself because I was like, man, I was the first one to make it to school. And I disappointed my family. Mm-hmm. And it made me think about the guidance counselor. And I was like, maybe he was right. Right now I'm second guessing myself. And part of the requirements to get back in school was I had to either work or go to community college. So I lied to my mother and I was like, nah, mom, you know, I'm on break from school. She didn't know I got kicked out of school. I couldn't even face her. So that was going to be the question. How did you tell your West Indian mother that you got dismissed from school? Oh, but it sounds it like, like you didn't. years later. I Not tell th- like 15 years later. That 15 I years later? Oh, yeah. I was like, she ain't going to kill me. <laughs> so you kept up the charade. Well, I went back six months later. Okay. But, but I didn't tell her the truth until about 15 years later. And and I was so ashamed and I was like, oh man, she's going to be so crushed. And it was really, I didn't want to disappoint her and hurt her because she done bragged to everybody. My baby going to college. I said, can you imagine six months later? So you came home? So you came home and just said you were on break? And said I was on break. I told her that they didn't have the classes I needed for next semester. And I had to wait a whole semester for those classes to come around. I had to come up with something and I had to think quick. But let me tell you something, I got a job and I met some of the best people that are still in my life to this day. And had mm-hmm. I not got kicked out of school, I would have never met them. And my life transformed because of the people I met. And when I look at the people who, and, and what was crazy is 
those friends that I hung out with, they failed too. But for some reason, they didn't get kicked out of school. That's why I said that was all God. Because he needed me to meet the people I met for my life to transform. And this is why we stay on this show all the time. Everything, uh, this is a horse I'm going to keep beating. Everything that happens to you, good, bad, and ugly is meant to push you in the direction of your destiny. Even poor decisions, not doing everything quite the right way can work out for your good and be used for your greater purpose. Yeah. And it sounds like that's what happened for you. So talk a little bit about that break. Where were you working? What were you doing? Oh my God, I was working at this coffee shop. It don't even exist anymore in Manhattan. I was working at this coffee shop and I had a customer that would come in every single day. He lived across the street from the coffee shop and um, black man. And come to find out his aunt owned the building. This was in Manhattan on like 80 something street in Lexington. Mm. My first encounter was seeing a black person with money. (laughs) So I was just like, what? A black man living in Manhattan again? Didn't even know black people own buildings or or even live in in 81st Street in Lexington. Right. Come on. And if you know any people who like have no concept, who don't live in New York, that's not a place anybody could live. Okay, let's just say that. Right. (laughs) <laughs> so he, he would come in every day and, and the staff working at the coffee shop, we were all black and brown and he would come. But I, the customers were white. All our customers were white. I, I don't even recollect ever having any black customers. The only black people we had that come in was the delivery people. Mm-hmm. And so he would come in every day and sit at the counter. And we had this uh, drink that we made that like included whipped cream and chocolate and all kind of delicious stuff. And I've always had um, I've, I've always been very particular about everything. Right. People always say I have OCD. And so for me, I like took my time to make these drinks. So customers would always come in and wait for me to come on shift to make that drink for them because I mm. took, so he would come and peep in and he'd be like, oh, Karen's not on, on, on the clock yet. And he'd come back and we would just start talking and talking. And I started learning so much from this man. And I was like, oh man. I mean, when I say he opened up my mind to a whole nother level of life that I didn't even know existed. And, and through his support and his aunt's support, they helped me write my reentry letter back into college. Wow. Because I, I had to write a whole letter. And I was like, had they not been there to support me, I wouldn't have got back into school. And, and so the journey began with my life. So you get back into school. Get back into school, major in journalism. Uh, love it. Doing newspaper, have my own radio show, uh, learning about television, end up graduating, coming back home. I end up randomly getting a job at Channel 5. How did that happen? Oh, man. I t- God is so good. Let me tell you. So <laughs> I was working at Toys R Us. This was, this was around, this was right after 9-11. I was working at Toys R Us in Times Square. It, had, it was a brand new store. They didn't even finish building it yet. And I needed a job. I just came home. I didn't even know. See, and this was also part of what was missing from me in school is nobody sat with me and taught me how to get a job in television. I now have a journalism degree. I don't know how to go out and get a job. So I come home and I'm like, okay, I, I just need a job. I just need to work. I've always worked, always had two jobs since I was 15. That's because you're West Indian, okay? That's, that's, well, that's technically, why. Technically, I started working at 13. And then, <laughs> you know, they shouldn't have hired me, but they did. And then, you know, then I just summoned you at 14 and I've always had two jobs. But yeah, it's real. When we talk about West Indians having tree jobs, we, just, we really have tree jobs, right? Like yes. I've had multiple jobs. So fast forward, um, I ended up applying for the Toys R Us in Times Square. I got a su- I was a supervisor. So one day, uh, my staff member called me out on the floor to help with a customer. So I come out, 
And I said, you know, I was helping her out with this lady. And I just, I just told her, I said, you know what? You can help someone else. I'll keep helping the lady instead of passing her back and forth. So we were talking and she was shopping for a gift for her niece. And I remember, you know, I still didn't know who she was. And so she was like, so, you know, this is a great store. Like, what do you, you know, is this is retail what you do? What do you, I was like, actually, I just graduated from school with my journalism degree, you know, and I don't know. I'm, I, I got to figure out how to find a job in television. And, and she said, you have a journalism degree? I said, yeah. And she says, oh, wow. And she says, um, I've been looking for an executive assistant uh, to work with me at, at Channel 5. And she was like, you know, and she told me her name and she took out her card and she was like, um, she was, she was the, the, I forgot her exact title, but she was high up executive. I was like, are you serious? And she said, I'm serious. She says, uh, and this was on a Saturday. It was a Saturday afternoon. She said to me, you start Monday morning, show up at 7 a.m. You have a job. I swear to you, I never. That's not how that happened. That's not how that happened. I never filled out an application. I had a job. She loved my energy and my spirit and hired me right there at the cash register. I got a job. At Toys R Us in At Times Toys R Square. Us. That's how I got my first job in television. So you show up that Monday I morning. show up. I was in awe. I'm like, oh my gosh, I can't believe this. And my role was everything, pretty much. My role was everything. Like I learned how to produce, edit, B-roll. I mean, you name it. I was the person who was essentially like my main role was getting celebrities in studio. So mm-hmm. I had the contacts to all the celebrities, managers, agents, and blah, blah, blah. And and I had to keep the show exciting. And so we brought all kinds of people in, all kinds of people from Snoop to Bernie Mac. Actually, they surprised me in studio with Bernie Mac because I loved him so much and, and God rest his soul. But um, I mean, all of them, Cedric, I mean, everybody you can think of, we've had in studio with the exception of Oprah. Like it was so, so much fun. <laughs> so you talked about like, Nobody telling you how to break into TV or, you know, so there's no internship to full-time job pipeline. You just get this amazing blessing that drops into Toys R Us on a random weekend. That's clearly not so random. Mm -hmm. What did you feel like though going in? Did you feel like I have what it takes to do this or I have no idea what I'm walking into and am I going to be able to rise to the occasion? Both. Okay. Both. Because I had a strong work ethic already. I've been working since I was 13. And mm-hmm. at that point, I was 20, 20, I was 21. I don't even think I, t- no, I didn't even turn 21 yet. I was 20. Mm-hmm. I was 20 when it happened. And I, it was, I had a strong work ethic, so I knew how to behave at work. But I was also still questioning my skill set because I knew I wasn't the smartest and I didn't have the television experience. I had school experience which is different when you get there and you're dealing with live TV. So this is not no scripted stuff. So I had to be at work by 4 a.m. That was Mm. my shift. 4 to 12 was my shift. (laughs) And I had to make sure that all of the news anchors' scripts were ready, that the news was properly typed. See, that was then when when the work was, you know, everything was typed up for the anchors. Like, it was like you give them, they had paper scripts. I had to make sure that machine was ready, that the wire was going and we were able to cover breaking news. Like I was running around when you're dealing with live TV, you got to be on it. Right. And so it was an eye opener for me on the behind the scenes work. And but it was the it was one of the best jobs I've ever had to this day. It was so fulfilling. So also there's a level of nuance here because dealing with celebrities Mm-hmm. And dealing with celebrity teams and mm-hmm. celebrity handlers mm-hmm. is no easy feat. 
No. So what was that like for you? Um, you know, by time, it, it wasn't, it actually wasn't as difficult. Um, it was when people got in studio and the cameras weren't rolling. You see who a lot of these celebrities are behind the camera. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, for the most part, you know, like the agents and managers, some of them are very high strong. Um, but it was it was some celebrities that when those cameras were off, I was just like, mm, this is who you really are. Right. So. so that- <laughs> <laughs> and that's all we'll say about that. We won't ask about anybody specific. Mm-hmm. But um, very important question. Did you resign from Toys R Us right away? Oh, I ran in. Oh, yeah. I ran in. I remember this. I ran into my supervisor and I said, to her, I got a job. I got. And she said, we know you have a job. You work here. <laughs> and I said, no, I got another job. And she's staring at me like, who gets excited to come tell their current boss they got another job? But I, and then, so when I told her the story of what happened, they all in the office turned and looked at me and they said, huh? Uh, some executive from Chanfire just came in and gave you a job? I say, yes, look her car. She told me I start Monday at 7 a.m. They were like, are you sure? I said, I'm showing up Monday at 7 a.m. <laughs> and I said, and sure enough, and I ended up quitting, quitting at uh, Toys R Us. So how long did you stay in this executive assistant role that sounds like way more than an executive assistant role at yeah. Fox 5? Yeah, I was there for a year. Mm-hmm. And then okay. what happened? Uh, so then I was, I didn't want to work at Channel 5 anymore. Different reasons. Mm-hmm. And uh, so I was looking at going to ABC. And um, there was some weird transition at ABC. I ended up knowing somebody at ABC. And so she was like, okay, I want you to come on. And then somebody got sick in her family. So it just kind of, lo- it just took a while. So I had a friend who said to me, he said, uh, hey, why don't you come while you're waiting on uh, everything to get cleared at, at ABC? Why don't you come work over here and help me out in the group home working with kids? I said, working with kids? I don't want to work with no kids, right? I thought, so he was like, no, I think you'll be really good at it. You know, it'll be temporary while you wait in and transition. That was what, 18 years ago? So, okay. So you get this coveted opportunity, right? Because people mm-hmm. would give their left arm to work in TV. We know this, right? Yes. And especially from the outside looking in, everybody thinks it's the sexiest thing ever. They don't know all the politics and bureaucracy and everything and the mm-hmm. ugliness and toxicity that can go on behind the scenes. You do it for a year. You decide that's not where you want to be. Mm-hmm. Some things get tied up and you end up in a group home. In a group home. Working with kids who have been removed from their homes. This is just like a whole nother world to me because I'm like a group home. What, what, what is this? Oh man, that's when my life really changed. I, I think, and I go through so many things and I keep thinking that's when my life changed and then something else happens and that's when my life changed. And I ended up working at this group home in the Bronx, all girl group mm. home. And let me tell you something, those stories, those stories will crush you. Because I couldn't even fathom some of the reports I was reading about how these girls ended up there. Uh, The things that they went through and suffered through in life. And I remember one day, my supervisor came to the house. And he had a very raspy voice. And so you you didn't know when he was in a good mood and a bad mood because he just, he was even toned all the Mm -hmm. time. So he he comes and he calls me now. He goes, uh, um... This is before I became Dr. Baptiste. I was Ms. Baptiste, right? So he called, he said, uh, Ms. Baptiste, come downstairs. 
I was like, oh my gosh, what did, you know, what is he want? What did I do? So I come downstairs and I was like, hi, how are you? So he's, he's, he's standing there just looking at me and I'm standing there looking at him, it's awkward. And he goes, you know, you really need to go into public education. You'll do much better there than you're doing here. You, you got a lot of great stuff you can do and I think you'll do the greater good there. And I was like, I, I literally looked at him and I said, is that a compliment, sir? <laughs> because he's so, he's just so abrasive. And so he was like, if you want it to be, I was like, oh my gosh. <laughs> like, so I was like, uh, thank you. And so fast forward, I ended up going in public education. I became a paraprofessional, which is a teacher's assistant, right? Came a paraprofessional. So I'm working with kids with special needs. And I just really, my heart, I've always been a person at roots with a dark horse, the underdog, and my heart just like, bled for, for, for kids with special needs. And fast forward, I'm doing that role for, I think I did that role for like two years, two and a half years. And uh, the assistant principal calls me one day and she says, you need to just get your license and become a, t- a special ed teacher. Mm. And she was like, and I'll hire you. And I was like, are you serious? And she's like, yep. Most of my jobs I didn't have to apply to. Mm. People just started seeing things and would say, do this, do that, do this, do that. And I would say, okay. <laughs> and then I'd do it. Uh, And it was things that I didn't even have a thought about doing. And that's how I became a special ed teacher. So did you miss television? Did did you have this longing of like, wow, I'm passionate about this. I'm passionate about education. But like I had this amazing access and opportunity over here. Every day. It's been 20 years since I've had that role at Fox. And I still wake up every day craving that role again. I'm a jerk with that heart. So how do you reconcile that, right? Because, and we're going to get more into how your your career has evolved, but how do you reconcile that craving yeah. for something that you once had with this really important work that you're you're also doing and have been doing, you know, for two decades? That's a really great question. I struggled. I didn't even know I was depressed. Mm-hmm. I, did, I didn't know. I didn't know I was depressed. I, I longed and craved to be back in television. All I've ever wanted to do was investigative journalism. Um, and, and so as a teacher, though, I started to see things that were so disgusting in the field, uh, so many injustices against children, particularly children of color and children with special needs. And then if you're a child of color with special needs, it's even worse. So as I started to see it, I really started researching. See, that was my investigative journalism. So I started researching on like, what this is, what, why are there so many black and brown kids who are smart as hell being referred to special education? There's nothing wrong with these kids. And as I started to uncover and realizing something called the school to prison pipeline, it really started pushing me in an angle to do policy work. And so that, that inquiry of mine took me in the direction to do policy work and to become vocal because I just got, I just started getting to a point in my life where I just, I was tired of being afraid to speak up. Mm. I didn't want to be blacklisted. So you were made, so you have a lot of people in education that are complicit, uh, not because they want to be, but because they start thinking about their livelihood. So they don't want to lose their job. And they know if they speak up, they're blacklisted. They can't move up. They can't do. So they go along with what they know is not right. Right. And I just got tired of being complicit. I got tired so, of so what does that look like for you, right? Because we know that there's a very real possibility of back- backlash. Even if you say, you know, I'm going to be courageous, I'm going to speak my mind, yeah. I'm going to advocate, that can affect 
mm-hmm. your career prospects. Yeah. So how were you able to balance your work with the advocacy that you were doing and pushing for policy changes and all of that? When I realized I couldn't sleep at night is when I knew I wasn't doing the right thing. Mm. And I didn't care anymore. I really didn't care. I would show up to policy meetings and I'd be like, and I'd start speaking out. That's not right. Why is this happening? Or, you know, I'd school meetings, I'd speak out at those. And what would end up happening, I'd show up to my local community meetings, speak out on those. And then eventually what happens is you start seeing this, people sitting up front at the board because they want to know, who's that? Who is that? What's, your, right. what's my name? And literally people started writing my name down and I would, I'm, I'm fast forwarding now. I remember one day getting an email saying that I have been appointed <laughs> to the legislative committee uh, for ASCD, which is, you know, their, their acronym actually formally stands for um, Association for Supervision Curriculum Development, which is one of the largest educational organizations in the world. And having just showing up to meetings, and not only was I showing up locally in my community and then across the city of New York, then I started showing up in conferences across the nation and speaking out and people writing my name down. And so I realized people started to respect that I was unafraid. Mm-hmm. And so it became like, well, do you accept we want you to serve a three-year term? And that's how I started working on, you know, serving on this committee, working with Congress to actually develop educational policy points and to show up and meet members of the House and the Senate um, to represent and, and talk about the discriminatory practices, um, the inequitable policies and funding, lack of funding and what that looks like in communities like mine and so forth. And, and I've been going since. So once again, you never asked or applied or nope, never requested. Applied. You were appointed. And, and I think there's an important lesson here because we have this narrative, particularly in the Black community, that you have to fight and scrape and claw for everything, right? Mm -hmm. And there is truth to that, right? Mm -hmm. Like we just, this part of what your work is about, we are set up to fail so often. Uh, But the lesson here in the work that you've done and the opportunities that you have received is that there's something to be said about alignment Mm -hmm. and being aligned with, and especially for you, saying, I grew up and I thought I was talentless. I Mm -hmm. I didn't even, you know, I had this interest in journalism, but I didn't even know what I was good at. But being open to receive opportunity and just showing up and showing up consistently and showing up to places that may not be your destiny, right? but they're a stop on the way and a necessary stop. And I think that's something that's important for people to get through your story. Absolutely. Let me tell you, when my my brother became the poster child for the school to prison pipeline in New York City. I didn't even realize I was so busy. You know, I'm, I'm 14 years older than him, so I'm technically old enough to be his mother, right? Mm-hmm. And he is my favorite person in the world. There is no secret to that. He's my baby, and I always say he's my first and only child. And while I was so busy doing all of what I was doing as an educator, I didn't realize that he was suffering silently mm-hmm. and going through this. And when that hit my household, There was a fire in my belly that developed because now mama bear is out. Mm -hmm. It was one thing when I saw it happening to other people's children, but now it happened to mine. Oh, hell no. Mm -hmm. And that's when I became like, oh, no, I'm taking the gloves off and everybody is going to hear me raw. And, And that's the approach I took. And so 
over the years, I kept praying to God, like, God, this is not like, you know, journalism is really what I want to do. Why did you put me in education? There's a reason he put me there. And as I kept going up, going up and what happened to my baby boy and I started and, and the, the when I became a international consultant and starting to see the injustice, I keep thinking, oh, this was just in New York City. But now I'm seeing it everywhere. I'm seeing it in New Jersey. I'm, I'm seeing it in, in California. I'm seeing it in Tulsa. I'm seeing it in Atlanta. I'm seeing it. Every, I haven't been to 40 out of 50 states. I've been to mm. schools in 40 out of 50 states. It is everywhere. And when I started seeing this, I was like, what am I supposed to do with this information? Because I felt a burden. And I knew I wasn't supposed to just come back home and go to sleep. I had a responsibility to do something with what I know. And a lot of people don't get that. And then you get people who understand. That's why a lot of times people don't want to know what's going on. Because once you know something, you have to do something. Right. And now that I knew what I knew, I didn't know what to do with it. And all I could do was pray about it. And I, and I just kept saying, God, what am I supposed to do? Like, how do I let parents know about these injustices happening at the school level to their children, that they are being forced to sign documentation to place their child in special education when their child does not need it? Mm-hmm. Or their child is not getting the service because the school doesn't want to provide the service, right? So it, it's used both ways. And so, and through my prayers and my patience, God gave me the vision to do the documentary. And when it came to me, I was like, I started researching and digging. I was like, I can't believe nobody's ever done a documentary on the school to prison pipeline. I can't believe it. I can't, like, this is one of the most detrimental practices to the black and brown community. Right. How has no one done a documentary on this? Like, there are other educational documentaries where they mention the school to prison, but no one's actually done a documentary on the school to prison pipeline. And I really looked and I said, You really want me to do it? This is my conversation with God. I was like, you really want me to do this? And the response is, yes, you are the one. Because it's not, this is not, oh, I'm telling this story to tell it as a journalist because this is the next story on our list. This is not just professional. This is personal for me. And that's Mm. what people don't get. And And nobody else can tell this story better than I can because of the level of experience I've had nationally, that I've had in the classroom locally but also because of in my household, the amount of jails and prisons that I had to visit my brother in. Those stories, you can't make that when you, if you haven't been through it, you can only think about what it might be like, but you don't know what it's like until you've been there. When I walk into those, into the prisons and they put an ID tape, the IDs on the table, and I'm looking at the IDs on the table and now one ID has a birth date of a child who is older than 24 years old, Mm. what that does to you. When I look at the amount of of mothers, women lined up waiting to see their babies incarcerated, what that does to you. And so at this point, I'm like, I have a moral responsibility to tell this story, Mm. to dismantle the school to prison pipeline to dismantle the racist policies that have been on the books in America for decades. That is what my purpose is, is to liberate, to dismantle and revamp the entire educational system in this country. Because if we keep our people oppressed, we don't have to worry about their behavior. We already know what they're going to do. If we Mm -hmm. continue to control their mind, we already know what they're going to do. 
Absolutely. And, you know, I I want to talk more about your brother's story to the extent that you can. Uh, but before we get there, you mentioned something that hit a nerve for me, and that is schools not wanting to provide certain resources. Mm-hmm. And as someone who works in, has been in corporate America for a number of years and around people with a lot of money and a lot of, a lot of people who don't look like me, but who have children who are, neuro, are, are not neurotypical or have some issues or what have you um, that need to be worked through. It blew my mind talking to parents mm-hmm. of a certain level of wealth and they're talking about moving to a new school district or leaving Manhattan for Jersey or something. And they say, oh, yeah, um, you know, my, my kid had all these services in New York and I'm moving to Jersey and they didn't offer them. So we hired a lawyer mm-hmm. and, you know, we had an education lawyer and now it's all set. It's all settled and they the school has to provide it. Mm-hmm. And I didn't know that that was a thing because the way I grew up, if somebody exhibited behavioral problems or had special needs or just couldn't cooperate in class, Their parent might have gone up to the school a couple of times. They might have been in alternative school or given an IEP, whatever Mm -hmm. that meant. Right. And that was just the end of it. If the school didn't have the service, they just didn't have them. And they got pushed along or they fell by the wayside or they ended up in a group home or in juvie or what have you. And I'm talking to somebody with a law degree. I didn't know that you could retain an attorney if you have the resources to fight the proper support for your child and how many people in our communities don't know that they don't know they have no idea if i didn't know that having been to school having an advanced degree you know working in these environments how many people don't have no idea the resources that are available to them or don't have the money to be able to hire someone to advocate for them in that way and it goes back to when i said earlier just because you know we were financially poor we weren't intellectually poor mm-hmm the information is intentionally withheld from us, right? Right. It's intentionally withheld. And as a former classroom teacher, what ended up happening is you are told not to tell parents certain things so that they don't know their rights. Mm. Because in the poor communities, and especially if it's parents who are immigrants and they're not here legally, they're definitely not going to speak up. Right. So they're taken advantage of and parents believe, well, if the school is telling me this, they want what's best for my baby. Mm -hmm. When the majority of people teaching our babies don't even look like our babies. They've never lived with Black people. They've never engaged with Black people. Their only encounter with Black people and understanding of Black and Brown people is what they see on the TV. Right. So now you come in as a teacher to save us. Because that's you did a lot teach of for America or whatever. And right? yeah, that's the mentality. I'm going to go in and save these fill in the blank. Mm-hmm. Right. And, and so, you know, they look at it. A lot of them look at it as their community service project going in and teaching these urban inner city kids. Right. And so when now when we start talking about race, everyone's uncomfortable all of a sudden. Right. Right. Why we start talking? Because why? Your first encounter is with a five-year-old. Your first encounter with a black or brown person in understanding who we are is with a five-year-old. And you're using that to measure who we are as a people. Mm-hmm. Besides what you see on TV. How, how can you effectively teach us? You know nothing about us other than what the media told you we are. Right. And we know 
the racism that exists there. I mean, it has forever, right? And so, I mean, you, you look at the school system is purposely designed for us to fail. Let's be clear. First of all, the school system was actually designed for white males. It wasn't mm. even designed for white females. It was designed for white males. That's what a lot of people don't even understand. Third, do, a lot of people don't even know that prison beds are created based on how third graders perform on the state test. Say that again. Yes. Prison beds are created based on how third graders perform on state tests. This is why it's high stakes testing, because there's a predictor that if X amount of third graders, in third grade, they are eight years old. If they fail the state tests, the likelihood that they will end up incarcerated. Can you wow. imagine as a parent that your eight-year-old baby is already being counted to be incarcerated? And that's how prison beds, right? Prison is not to rehabilitate in this country. Mm -hmm. It's to keep the beds filled. Yeah. And that's the thing that people like don't want to talk about, the business of prison. They don't want to talk about that at all. But let me tell you, special education, <laughs> man, I could talk about this forever, right? And I'm just going to give you the overview. Special education was created, again, to separate Black and brown people and to say that we are intellectually inferior to whites. That's mm. the only reason these disability labels came about was because when you look at the law, right, the law says, like, we have to receive a free, appropriate education. But it doesn't say that you have to provide it in the same setting with white kids and right. in affluent areas. So what do we have redlining? Why do we, this is why schools are zoned. Right. So now here comes disability labels. And all of a sudden, the IQ tests, all of us are below IQ level all of a sudden. That's a, a, a bias test as well. Mm -hmm. State testers, we all know, those, that's bias. The standardized test that kids take in school, that's bias as well, right? The IQ test. So we're going to use that now to determine the intellectual abilities of Black and brown people. And it just will happen, they all fall below what we say, right? When we all know that's not even a norm test. Right. Right. So uh, and then on top of that, let's go even further back to Dr. Benjamin Rush, who is known as the father of psychiatry. Back in the 18th century, he diagnosed Black people with something called negritude. Mm -hmm. <laughs> right. He considered negritude an affliction that Black people had and, and likened it to leprosy and pretty much said, like, if you touch us, it will rub off on you. Our laziness our stupidity, our ignorance would rub off on you. And that the only cure for us was whiteness, was to become white. Mm -hmm. So you think about this man. Meanwhile, he was considered an ally to the Black community. And, and, and I want to stop there because people will hear this and say, that's crazy, right? But that was also a million years ago. And there are people here who are positioned and are positioning themselves as allies who also have a degrading view of Black people still. Of course. And, and nobody wants to talk about that either. No. That's why I get nervous when somebody calls themselves an ally. What, <laughs> what have you done? And what do you do? You're an ally? Okay. Let's talk about that. Mm -hmm. Right? Because now you have someone called the father of psychiatry diagnosing Black people with negritude, right? So now we have the introductory of the disability labels. So now we, yes. we, we start, this is how we isolate and put black and brown people now. We're going to pull them out. They can't send that. They're going to 
They're going to get the same, but we're going to do it in a separate environment. Mm -hmm. Now, on top of that, now what do they start doing? Now we start writing prescriptions for kids. Right. So we have kids on Risperdal, Ritalin, Concerta, Zola, Prozac. A lot of these are Schedule II drugs, Schedule IIA drugs, right? What Mm -hmm. does that mean? That means that these drugs are just as addictive as cocaine. Right. We're writing prescription. We're putting kids on it. I have never met a Black man who has not been referred to special education, whether he ended up there or not. But I've never, never met a Black man who hasn't shared a story with me where it was like, yeah, they tried to put me in special ed too. And then they start giving the, writing the prescriptions for the drugs. Why? Because we need to dope our children up because they need to be able to sit like this all day long. Right. And it goes back to the assimilation of prisons. Schools are built like prisons. Hence the school to prison pipeline. This is literal, right? There's a scheduled time to eat. You get picked up. You're told when to do what, when, by where, and then you're released in the afternoon. You have to walk down the hall with your hands by your side or in some cases, your hands behind your back. Mm -hmm. Thank you for listening to the December 26th podcast. I am your host, Delisha. This episode was produced by Demarcus Adisa and music was provided by Thovo. You can find us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at December 26er. That's December 26ER.